Liz Truss wants the rich to get richer. And if you don't like it, she doesn't care. Trussonomics is our top story this evening. And we've also got interviews on the dramatic protests in Iran. And we'll be discussing the continued demonization of Republicans in Britain, obviously. Republicans in the anti-monarchist sense, not in terms of the right-wing American political party. I'm joined throughout the show by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? Hello, Michael. I have a much less exciting background now, but this is the background that I can actually afford. So it's the one that will be staying for the foreseeable future. But yeah, so happy to see you. It's been a little while. Has anything happened since I've been gone? Nothing of <laughs> note. Actually, I have to say, it, it, what has happened, Dahlia, is the most important event the world will ever see. That was, of wow. course, according, according to Lindsay Hoyle. i to hear what it is. The very serious um, speaker of the House of Commons. Something which is important and which has been going on, but we won't be discussing tonight, is nuclear threats from Vladimir Putin. That is not for any particular editorial reason. It's just that I struggled with a guest today and we have a great one lined up for Friday. So if we are still all alive by then, if the world hasn't been obliterated, do tune in on Friday for discussion of Vladimir Putin, Ukraine and nuclear threats. With the Queen's period of national mourning now over, Liz Truss's government has been coming forward with a slew of policy announcements. Following last week's news about an energy freeze for domestic consumers, Business Secretary Jacob Rees-Mogg today announced a similar package for commercial users. We've announced the non-domestic support package, which means that the wholesale price for electricity will be £211 per megawatt, and for gas will be £75 per megawatt. And from that, customers will then get their prices. So it is providing for the non-domestic market, which includes schools and hospitals, charities and businesses, something that is equivalent to the support uh, for the domestic sector. It's more complicated because there isn't a price cap for the non-domestic sector, but it will have an equivalent effect. And it's a huge support for business to ensure that they can cope with the rise in the price of energy that's come essentially from Putin's war. Cost? Um, any information on cost? Well, the difficulty with giving you a cost figure is that this will depend on where the price of energy goes over the winter, and that's very difficult to forecast. So I can't give you an absolute cost, but we are talking about many um, billions of pounds. Tens of billions. Well, it will be into tens of billions, unquestionably. That commercial plan is for six months, which is in contrast to the two-year commitment made for domestic consumers. Separate from energy, we've also had briefings about what else might be in the mini-budget set for this Friday. The Times reports that Truss is planning to cut stamp duty. That's the tax people pay when they buy a house. Earlier today, I spoke to economist James Meadway and asked him what he thinks of Trussonomics so far. It's much as expected, really. I mean, she's... she's doing what she said she'd do step by step. And I think we'll find out more on Friday what the next parts of that are. This isn't Thatcherism in the way we might think of it. So we think of Thatcher as somebody who'd be you know, busy cutting spending and balancing the books and saying it's vitally important to get rid of the deficit and pay down the debt for government and this sort of thing. Trussonomics is, is much more like um, Ronald Reagan, if you're looking for 1980s comparisons. So this is, we're going to cut taxes for the rich, but we're going to basically not actually touch spending at this point in time. Now, that doesn't mean down the line the size of the debt and the deficit won't be used as an excuse to shrink the state, to reimpose really harsh austerity, this sort of thing. 
but it's also a government that, that's going to hand out really incredible amounts of money straight away. I mean, the, the, the sums that's now coming forward for support for households and their businesses to deal with the the energy price crisis are, are really huge. There's all sorts of problems with what they're doing, but the amount that's being put forward, I mean, just the household intervention, we're talking £150 billion over two years. That's more than double the cost of the furlough scheme back in, in 2020 and uh, 2021. So these are big interventions there, combined with a whole load of stuff about deregulation, tax cuts, and all the rest of it. If you put it all together, what it looks like is an effort to sort of pay to deal with the crises here, and then perhaps get on to the, the meat of what they want to do, which is deregulation, which is tax cuts, which is letting the, the city rip and this sort of thing further down the line. The, the challenge for them is when do they get to the further down the line? What happens this winter with energy prices, with the energy supply, with food supplies, actually, and food prices? Uh, what happens to the value of the pound? There's any number of things that can go wrong here. And they're taking some very big gambles on how the economy operates and what people might think about the government in the midst of all this. You said there are some problems with the energy policy. Could you talk about those? What, what, what's wrong with what they've proposed? Look, in, in principle, there's the idea of a, a cap on prices and not simply exposing either households or businesses to the total amount of the price rise that's happened to the international price of gas, especially, uh, and therefore electricity, and therefore, you know, as well as natural gas over the last sort of well, most of this year, predating actually the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but that really put the rocket boosters on, on the, the price of gas. Now, that's fallen down a bit, but it's still way above what it was before. The idea that you're going to protect uh, households and consumers from these very, very large rises is, is a good one, right? There isn't really a reason why we have, or we've developed this idea that here you are in a household, you just need to pay to heat the thing, you just need to pay for a bit of cooking, you, know, you need to pay for electricity to keep the lights on. That's a fairly standard amount of stuff you need to do. Most people don't have wildly larger demands than that. There's no real reason why you should say, okay, let's have a market just vary, vary this up and down. Let's just uh, have it expose people to, to the whims and vagaries of the international market for, for natural gas in this case. There's no real reason to do that. So the idea that you're going to protect people is a good one. What's actually happened here is... That the government has said, okay, we will cap the price for households. And they've done something similar for businesses, but a few more details to come forward on that. We'll cap the price for households. And anytime that the wholesale price of gas, this big international price of gas goes above that, we'll just pay the difference effectively. And that's where this 150 billion cost comes from. It's an estimate of the amount that it will cost to protect, in this case, households over those two years uh, from those big international price movements. Now, the problem that people have pointed out correctly in this is that a certain part of that is actually just you're going to pay a load of uh, retail suppliers of gas and electricity in this company. And then actually, right down the other end of the pipeline, you're going to have to pay a great deal of money for the 50% or so of gas that we consume that we have to import from the rest of the world, that you have to pay the international price for. So you're just handing over large amounts of money uh, to um, producers elsewhere in the world. So whether it's gas you're buying from Qatar or from Norway, perhaps from the US, you're going to have to pay a large amount of money for this. So you're just kind of paying for somebody else's profits at this point in time. The government aren't doing anything about those profits, neither the profits in the rest of the world, which they can't do that much about, nor the profits in this country, which they can do something about. Because if you're BP or Shell or a few other companies, you're making absolutely enormous profits, not just in Britain, but across the rest of the world. And if you add all those excess profits, as, as, as people are calling them up, profits over and above what you'd normally get. For the next two years comes to about £170 billion. That's a treasure estimate, enough to pay for the entire freeze. 
The government aren't looking at that. They're just going out and borrowing money instead. Now, after years of being told government can't ever borrow money and the deficit is so important and you've got to get the debt down if you're government and this sort of thing, this is a 180-degree turnaround. But they're not really doing anything good with that debt and deficit. They're not going off and saying, okay, we're actually just going to invest in a whole new energy system, lots of renewables, lots of storage, lots of insulation for people. They're just handing over the money to cover people's bills for now. And they're doing it for two years. And they're doing it for two years because, of course, there's an election uh, no later than two years away. So it's very short term. It's not a bad idea in the short term to do something like this. But then you've got to use the opportunity to sort everything else out. They're not doing that. They're just handing over the cash. Loads of it is going in profit. And they're doing nothing about the profits that are being made by companies in this country uh, from the massive rising uh, prices across the world. Could you talk about the value of the pound falling? Why is that happening and should we care about it? Does it matter? This is something that I wouldn't call it a wild card because it's becoming increasingly obvious that the, the pound has, has, I mean, it fell a great deal in 2016 after the, the Brexit vote and it's been on the slide all of this year. Now that reflects in part something that's, that's happening to every country in the world, which is the dollar is strengthening. Interest rates in the US are being pushed up by the Federal Reserve. That's making assets uh paid for and valued in dollars more uh, attractive to investors in the rest of the world. So they're all trying to buy dollars. The dollar is rising in value relative to other uh, currencies as a result result of this. And the pound is affected by that. It's affected more than these other uh, currencies elsewhere in the world. It's falling faster than some of the other currencies out there because of really what's a concern that you start to see appearing in international markets about the state of the British economy in in a number of different ways. Some of that is partly because the government is now saying it's going to borrow a great deal of money and it's not very clear how open-ended this commitment might be. Say it's two years, you don't know what's going to happen to gas prices, you don't know what's going to be done to to try and they claim that big cuts to corporation tax costing £30 billion will drive up growth. You don't know if that's going to happen. So there's lots of big liabilities that are building up over there. The other bit is that we're now a country, and have been for a long period of time actually, that has to import certainly most of the manufactured goods we buy here, but also for really quite a few years now, we're a big importer of gas that just talked about. We're a big importer of lots of other kinds of energy, oil and this sort of thing. We can import much more than we actually produce in this country, and we're a big importer of food. So there's a lot of these essentials that we're going to have to pay for. Now, that matters because we're going to have to pay for those things. Even if you buy your oil in dollars, you have to take your pounds, turn them into dollars, and then buy the oil, let's say. So you're going to have to pay for these things using pounds. Those pounds are now falling a lot against the value of the dollars. That makes it harder and harder to buy all of these essential imports. So that's where it really starts to matter. Now, what you might start to see happening over the next few months, and the government has taken basically a big gamble that something like this won't happen, is that if prices of these essentials go up, if gas prices start to climb up again, if oil prices really start to rise again, food prices, by the way, are already rising uh, a lot across the world. I mean, that reflects the invasion of Ukraine. It reflects problems in harvest this year, right the way around the world, on the back of climate change and extreme weather. If those prices carry on rising for things they have to buy, and the value of the pound continues to drop, there's a real problem with actually trying to buy this stuff. And you, you start to look at a government that's looking very, very shaky in how much it's committed to paying for everything that it says it's committed to. So in other words, all of these things start to expose the real underlying weaknesses of the British economy. 
We're heavily dependent and lots of imports, often damaging for the environment. You know, these are fossil fuel imports that we're having to rely on if you're buying gas, that you don't have much in the way of domestic production. You don't have much in the way of domestic investment to make that happen. You have a weakening currency. You have a government that's running up these very, very large deficits that people elsewhere in the world start to look at. And particularly if you're trading money, you might start to think is a problem. And you're having to make lots and lots of commitments that you're trading your pounds into somebody else's currency to try and buy, but the value of that currency is dropping. So this looks like a very serious problem. The thing that rescues the government, it's a couple of things. One is, let's say it's a mild winter, and the forecasts are for a mild winter. So there's less gas in use, less heating. That makes life a bit easier for the government and for everyone here. Um, but there may, we may find that price of food doesn't rise uh, quite as much as anticipated. We might find that the other sort of importing prices don't move, shoot up quite as much as expected. Any disruptions to that, changes in what's happening in the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, disruptions to harvest, all sorts of things that can go wrong elsewhere in the world, and suddenly it all looks very, very shaky. So it's a high-risk situation for the government. And that turns into a high-risk situation for everybody in the whole country as a result of being exposed to this. And that put all that together, we're not in a very good place. And trustonomics, by the way, isn't going to get us out of this. It's just at the minute paying a large amount of money and then doing some handouts to your you know, preferred punters, a few wealthy people, a bit of deregulation for the city of London. Finally, let's talk about the cut in stamp duty that was briefed today. My Twitter feed today has been full of lots of people disagreeing over whether or not cutting stamp duty is a good thing. And it isn't as split along left-right lines as it sometimes is. What's the controversy here, James? What, what do you think about cutting stamp duty? Good idea, bad idea? It depends on where you sit on some separate rows about what's going wrong with the housing market in Britain. I mean, in and of itself, stamp duty is not a particularly desirable tax. If you had to sort of sit down and design a better property tax system than what we have in Britain, pretty much any tax system you could devise would start to look better than the system of property taxation we have. Not just stamp duty, but council tax, you know, the way the, the, the council tax uh, rebanding never happens. You, know, you have these very expensive properties that really haven't been operated properly for, for decades now, in some cases. Stamp duty sits there, you have to pay it as a buyer. It's something that Lots of economists will tell you it's bad because it makes it harder to buy houses. That means it's harder to move to other parts of the country. That means it's harder to go and take up jobs in other parts of the country, one side of it. So all these, these things are bad. Stamp duty is not a particularly necessarily a particularly great tax over here. And you can think of better ways to tax property. You have a, a tax on wealth for the people who hold the property, for instance, things like this. So that's, that's undesirable over there. The issue with cutting it is that what we know from the stamp duty holiday that Rishi Sunak introduced is that all that really happens is that you cut the stamp duty, you stoke up demand for houses. There's lots and lots of people there for own houses do quite nicely out of it. House prices go through the roof. I mean, even through, you know, out coming out of COVID and into this year, record increases, the biggest house price increases for some period of time on the back of a stamp duty cut, which in other words means that you cut the tax. So in theory, the house costs less. In theory, everybody who wants to buy a house is going to find this a bit easier. But then the price goes up again. So all you're doing instead of paying the government is you're paying whoever owns a house and quite likely whoever you've got your mortgage from. It doesn't make sense. It's just shuffling around how much you pay rather than doing something actually about how much it costs to buy a house. It's not going out there and building new houses. It's not going out there and starting to fix rents. It's, it's not offering cheaper mortgages to, to cheaper, secure government-backed mortgages, for instance, to uh, lots of first-time buyers. There's a whole load of things you can think of that would be better than this. But it is a nice shot in the arm, potentially, for a lot of people who own houses, who see the value of their house going up. And of course, just to be really cynical, a lot of these people are going to be conservative voters. And that makes it quite an appealing thing to do. 
That was James Meadway, who needs no introduction, good friend of the show. We are sticking on the theme of trussonomics. Liz Truss's obsession with tax cuts for the rich and pay rises for the wealthy might seem at odds with the fact that we're in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. But Truss is clear. She'll give bungs to elites, even if it makes her unpopular with the public. Lots of families at the moment are really struggling, and they'll see that one of the things you're happy to see happen is for bankers to get bigger bonuses. Whose side are you on? What I want to see is a growing economy so everybody in our country has the high-paid jobs that they deserve, the, the investment into their town, the new businesses being set up. That's the kind of Britain that I want to see. And if and that, that means, means the rich get richer, that's if, fine. If that means taking difficult decisions, which are going to help Britain become more competitive, help Britain become more attractive, help more investment flow into our country, yes, I'm absolutely prepared to take those decisions. So you're willing to do unpopular things if you think it can contribute to, to a bigger economy? That, that's right. And I will always work to make sure that we are helping those who are struggling. That's why we took the action that we took on energy bills, because we didn't want to see households facing unaffordable bills. There are so many things to say about that. I mean, obviously, the, the factual part of it, completely untrue. We know that if you cut taxes on the rich, that doesn't bring about higher levels of growth. And we know that because it's been tried. It's been tried for decades, especially since 2010. We had massive cuts to corporation tax. And what did we have? Completely stagnant growth. We've got wages which now are still lower than they were in 2008. So the idea that cutting taxes on the rich will help with growth, will help anyone other than the rich, is nonsense. The other reason I think that's a ridiculous thing that she said there. Well, not ridiculous. You can see why she's saying it, but a completely implausible thing she said is she's trying to make this argument. Look, I might be doing things which are unpopular, but I'm not driven by pleasing people. I'm not here to please people. I'm here to make policy that works. Now, you've got to remember here, when did she promise the tax cuts, right? She promised the tax cuts in a Tory leadership election because that electorate wanted them. She, I don't think she did have, you know, big ideological plans for the economy. I think she promised whatever she needed to promise in that election to get elected. It just so happened that the electorate were a very unrepresentative group of right-wingers who love tax cuts. And now she's got to explain to the public who don't really like tax cuts on the rich, why she now has that policy. Now she's saying, I don't care if it's unpopular, I'm going to do it because it's right. You didn't do it because it's right. You did it because you thought that that would help you win in a Tory leadership election. Now you're coming up with these really bizarre excuses to explain to the public why you are sticking to them. On the theme of Truss not caring what the public think, Beth Rigby from Sky honed in on another of Truss's unpopular opinions. They might not think it's fair that their children have to fund uh, government debt to fund, say, uh, tax cuts for big business or energy bills, and then they ultimately pick up the bill all their children do, all their children's children. They'll think it's not fair. You what? understand that. You can disagree with that, but you understand well, that's that a, point. That's a particular point of view you're expressing, which is what people on the left of politics often express. What I'm saying is that by keeping taxes low and growing the economy, we will get more tax revenues in. Six and actually, that will succeed. That will succeed in the long term in bringing the opportunities that people want to see. That's, that's 68% of the public think there should be a windfall tax. So it's not necessarily the left. It's a large proportion of, of voters that like a policy 
that you're not backing, just to point that out to you. Dahlia, I want to bring you in on this. I thought that was quite strong from Beth Rigby. I thought it's pretty cheeky of Liz Truss to say, oh, that question you're asking about a windfall tax, you're just being an ideological left-winger. And I mean, I don't think Beth Rigby is particularly ideologically left-wing, but she has a good response, which is no, 68% of the public think we should be putting a, a windfall tax on the super profits of the energy giants. This isn't an ideological thing. What did you make of that exchange? I mean, first of all, and she really, she really looks like it in a sense. Like, I, I think of Liz Truss as like the grim reaper of the British economy, where you have, you know, the British economy, it's been like sick for a while. It's been kind of rotting from the inside. And now uh, Liz Truss has, has arrived to kind of usher it over the threshold into sort of complete bleakness. But, but what I find, firstly, I mean, I do think that was a strong sort of pushback from Beth Rigby. But when you watch the full clip, there is this really frustrating tenor where Beth Rigby talks about, you know, this is going to be really unpopular. This is going to be really unpopular, which is it's good, you know, to show that that this kind of politics is not shared by the British public. But also at no point does Beth Rigby actually make the economic point that trickle down economics doesn't work. And I think that that's really important because it's really important to not buy into this idea that Liz Truss is promoting, which is that, you know, this is a difficult decision, but it's going to work. It's going to work in the long term, even if it's going to be difficult in the short term. No, as you said before, we have tried trickle down economics for about 30 to 40 years now. It hasn't worked. All it's done is what it's always been designed to do, which is to funnel all the wealth from the workers who create that wealth to the very top. And what I find as well, like so deeply shameful about the way that, that Liz Truss frames it, and I would argue the way that Beth Rigby kind of allows her to frame it in that way, is her framing this as taking difficult decisions. I find that so enraging because using working class people who didn't elect you and therefore you're not actually answerable to, at least for the next few years, using those people as essentially human shields to protect the profits of, you know, your fellow members of the establishment, of your classmates. That's not a difficult decision. That's actually a very easy decision and a decision that you're not going to be held accountable for, at least in the foreseeable future. A, a difficult decision are things like figuring out how to make 30 quid last for a weekly shop or, you know, figuring out how to get around your town without a car when you don't have decent public transport infrastructure or figuring out, you know, what, what, what am I going to pick tonight? A cold shower or a cold home? Those are difficult decisions. And those are decisions that people like Liz Truss and the execs that she's protecting are never going to have to make. But many of us are going to have to make throughout the winter. And I just, for me, I honestly, in times like this, I ask the same question that I find myself always asking uh, when it comes to the myriad of Tory prime ministers that we've had over the past decade. And that, that's another thing. You can't really talk about long-term wins for the economy when your party has been in power for the past 10 years and things have only gotten worse. But one question that I always ask, and it's somewhat flippant, but I just would love to know, is this coming from plain stupidity or just pure evil? Like, does Liz Trust genuinely believe that at this moment, when in some parts of the country, mainly, you know, London and the Northeast, 
nearly 40% of children are in poverty or at a time when I think it's a third of people are spending over 50% on rent, leaving barely anything else for the rest of your essentials. Does she really genuinely believe that at this moment, the best thing for the public is to cut taxes for the ultra wealthy? Like, does she actually believe that giving rich people more money in this moment is going to make everyone wealthier, despite the fact that this has been thoroughly discredited, not discredited, not just theoretically, but obviously more importantly in practice? Or is this just a matter of trust believing that the British people are currently in a moment of weakness, they're in a moment of fatigue after several years of a stagnant economy, after COVID, etc. And the energy crisis is simply providing a useful cover story to implement measures that have always been at the heart of conservative ideology, which is trying to squeeze as much wealth as possible out of working people and funneling that up, working people not just in Britain, but around the world, and funneling up and hoarding it for a tiny few. I would just love to know which probably some combination of the two, and it doesn't really matter because the outcome is the same and the response has to be the same. Um, But I do kind of wonder to what extent this is, you know, purely air between her ears uh, or whether it's, uh, you know, just cynicism. Yeah, I suppose I kind of think it's maybe a third way, a third way, probably unpopular with our audience. I think it's probably not proactive. Well, it's evil in the sense that she doesn't care. I don't think she is you know, necessarily coming up with this policy because she actively wants to make poor people more miserable. I think what it is, is she took whatever position she thought would help her become leader of the Conservative Party, just like she was pro-Remain. Then she was pro-Brexit when she realized that would help her in the Conservative Party. Loads of examples of her sort of flip-flopping throughout her career. I think basically she has been thinking for a long time now, how do I become leader of the Tory party? She decided I have to promise tax cuts. That's what she's done. Um, That doesn't excuse it because what has to come alongside that is she doesn't care if it makes people miserable. I don't know. I I think she probably doesn't actively want to make people miserable, but she really doesn't care if she does. I think it's probably a a very deep lack of of compassion. So her own personal advancement is way more important than millions of people struggling um, to feed their kids. Now, this opposition to trickle down, you might expect to hear this on Navarra media, radical leftists. Of course, they hate trickle down economics. Well, um, that opposition is not just limited to us. On the same day, Trust gave that interview. Joe Biden tweeted this. I am sick and tired of trickle-down economics. It has never worked. We're building an economy from the bottom up and middle out. Now, that couldn't sound further from the speech given by Liz Truss. And this is quite different to the last time a British Prime Minister was doing trickle-down economics. This, this, this all really emerges from that Reaganite, Thatcherite era. At that time, obviously, you had Thatcher and Reagan at the same time in office. They were both very much pursuing the same neoliberal policies, both saying what we need to do is cut taxes, raise interest rates. We don't have to care about inequality because what we're doing is going for growth. Obviously, as we've said, it didn't work. The wealth never trickled down. But you did have these two major economies in lockstep, obviously one of them more major than the other. Now that doesn't seem to be the case Dahlia, does this pose any risks for Liz Truss that, you know, at least when it comes to the the special relationship, if we're going to, I suppose, indulge that concept between the United States and the UK that we're radically diverging, at least rhetorically? 
Look, it's not popular, but I don't think the US particularly gives a crap about what the British Prime Minister has to say, particularly since that kind of global standing has fallen now that we've left the EU. But I think that it, it's really, that is a really interesting position, you know, coming from Joe Biden. And I think it is, that is a shift. And that is because, you know, Joe Biden, even, you know, within the Democrat, you know, within the Democratic Party, especially, uh, is not by any means on the left of the Democratic Party. I would argue that he's not even in the center of the Democratic Party, but he's actually on the right. And that, you know, his politics are probably what a Republican politics would have been indistinguishable from a Republican 10, 15, 20 years ago. At the end of the day, what we're seeing here is hopefully a recognition that trickle-down economics is, is fundamentally about believing that poor people either don't know how to or don't deserve to have control over the, their fair share of wealth uh, that they create in the in the economy. So instead of distributing that wealth fairly, because at the end of the day, the, the, the key logic underpinning trickle-down economics is this idea that poor people are not smart enough to spend their money wisely. So what we need to do is we need to hoard all that wealth and give it to the rich because they will spend it in a way that is good for the economy. They'll invest in creating jobs, they'll create businesses, they'll increase wages, etc. So that's where we should put the money rather than putting it towards, you know, back to the public through good wages, through a collective welfare system, through public ownership. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, the divine right of kings to rule and how supposedly far along from that we've come. But really, trickle-down economics is about the divine right of the already very rich to rule. And that's the kind of heart of that, of that logic. But obviously, anyone who's been like a sentient being for the past 30 years knows that that is nonsense. Under a growth-driven and capitalist society, when working-class people have access to wealth and infrastructure, that they are entitled to, they spend it in the economy and they drive growth within the economy. That's what creates jobs. That's what creates wages. What doesn't create jobs and create, you know, higher wages is rich people accumulating that wealth, putting it in offshore assets, putting it in offshore bank accounts, and maybe spending it on, you know, a few gas guzzling luxury assets like private planes that are going to accelerate the decline of our planet. Now, I don't believe that we should organize our economy around a growth principle. I think it's devastating for, for the environment, devastating for the climate. And I don't think it makes us happy or satisfied as human beings. But let's like play along that logic for a while. You know, the logic of a list trust, which is, you know, wanting to sustain a growth driven economy. Even within that, it is a complete fallacy to believe that tax cuts are going to drive that. And so the fact that even Joe Biden can now see that that story that has been told around trickle-down economics, that ultimately this is something that's going to benefit the rest of society rather than just being a way of funneling resources to the top who we believe are you know, mentally and intellectually superior to the rest of us. If Joe Biden can realize that, hardly a socialist, then there is absolute, then this is what I mean by is it stupidity or is it evil? And I think it's a combination of the both. It's wanting to do the thing that you've always been wanting to do, which is redirect wealth away from those who deserve it and who are entitled to it and who created it towards those who largely didn't create that wealth. 
but just being a little bit behind the times when it comes to the story, like the trickle down economic story, it's kind of old Liz. You need to like update it a little bit because now that you've been doing it for 30 years, we've realized that, you know, most people hear that and think, well, that's what I've been told for the past 30 years. And it turned out that what they call trickle down economics was just the rich pissing at us from, from above. So, yeah, I think that it is a in, in really interesting shift in Joe Biden's politics. I wonder if it, it actually represents a genuine shift in the economic policy that is going to undermine that administration. That is yet to be seen. But it also just shows kind of how tired and unimaginative and how much we are really at the dregs of conservative politicians, that they are still peddling a very outdated, unconvincing and generally unpopular uh, mask, you know, false e economic story that was always false, but now whose falsehood is kind of more widely known by the public. Very well put. One thing I want to add, I think there is a worse place that, that these rich people can invest their money other than offshore accounts, which is houses. So I think London is the biggest example of trickle-down economics not working. They say, what we're going to do, we're going to attract the super rich, that will make loads of jobs for everyone. It made a few minimum wage jobs and it doubled all of our rent. You know, so I, I don't think that bargain worked out for ordinary Londoners, I'm afraid. Let's move on to our next story. Iran has been rocked by demonstrations as women protest the oppressive laws they're subject to. The immediate spark for the unrest was the death in custody of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was arrested by the morality police for not wearing the hijab appropriately. In response, women have been publicly burning their hijabs. There have been protests in at least 15 cities, with official sources saying that seven people have so far been killed. Tara Saperi-Farr from Human Rights Watch spoke to Channel 4 News about the significance of the protests. I think the significance of this protest is because it is happening in um, in demands for accountability for this other woman and about, uh, about a, a women's rights issue that has become the center of political debate. It is a very rare moment. I can't recall um, recall protests at this scale in uh, in demand for women's rights and dignity in, in recent years, certainly in the past decade. And just give us a sense of how dangerous it, it is for women to protest in this way. Women have been protesting in various ways um, over the past 40 years um, by merely living their life by uh, thriving uh, in higher education by attempting to have equal rights in employment by by leaving the house and choosing what they wear but they have become bolder and bolder and and more loud in choosing what they want and expressing it in the street taking off a headscarf in in public um can be punished um legally but also um uh, over the past um, three, 3 or 4 years authorities have been trying to chop up charges against people who peacefully protest, accusing them of a connection to foreign forces, sometimes handing out prison sentences uh, of several years. Um, this is uh, this shows an act of defiance and and uh, reclaiming of agency. And it's um, it's uh, it's not it's led by women, but it's good to see that it's not only women who are coming out to street, men and people from um, different uh, backgrounds are accompanying them. I'm joined now by Iskander Sadegi, a lecturer in political theory at Goldsmiths University, and Mitra Youssefi, a PhD candidate in social economics at Hamburg University. Um, Iskander, I want to start with you. Can you give us a, a sense of how widespread these protests are? So 
I mean, the protest did um, pretty much very swiftly as soon as uh, pictures of Massa Amini were actually broadcast online and then obviously kind of lit social media alight. Um, there were immediately sort of protests seen actually at the hospital where she was being held. And those quickly, obviously, there's news of her actually death spread. Um, there were further protests actually in her hometown of Sakas in Kurdistan, Iranian Kurdistan. And then they, really there was just, they've just been spreading and spreading and spreading. It's just been quite remarkable to watch everywhere from Rasht in the north of Iran to even places like Zahedan in the southeast of the country, which is generally often people would say is rather, rather conservative. So really I, you see them sort of engulfing the country as a whole. Obviously women are very much at the forefront of this, but it is also men uh, very much sort of taking a secondary role and really confronting um, security forces as are women. Um, and it's it's really quite remarkable to see. It's sort of what we're seeing in many ways is sort of like a fear barrier has been broken through. And I really do struggle to find precedent in that respect. And I just think that, um, you know, it's testament to the fact that um, people really have reached in many ways the end of their tether and not only that, I mean, obviously, I, I forgot to actually mention this, Massa Amini came from obviously the Kurdistan region. But I think the reason why we're seeing them on such a widespread scale is because they speak to really universal concerns, a sort of systemic discrimination and violence and gendered violence against women, which is something which is day in, day out. Uh, people experience throughout the entirety of the country. Um, so this is why it's sort of it's resonated with so many men and women, because I'm sure um, obviously women do experience this first and foremost, they experience the brunt of it. But um, many men, of course, they would have experienced, you know, a sister, a cousin, uh, an aunt and so on, who have been detained in this horrible way, demeaning, humiliated, and then basically criminalized for simply wearing improper attire. So that's why I think it really has hit a nerve. And I think with this new generation of people, many people who don't even remember, for instance, the reformist period and so on. They really um, have only experienced disappointments and sort of systemic crisis, whether it's on the economic front, whether it's on the political front. Um, and they really have begun to see that um, women's rights and claiming them and, you know, forcing, uh, you know, really, really forcing their way to the forefront of the sort of the political struggle is essential to any kind of deeper democratic transformation in Iran as well. Mitra, I want to get your thoughts on, I suppose, the context of this. If you could sort of explain to our audience, the nature of the oppression of, of women in the Iranian Republic. What is the background here? Obviously, there is a, an immediate event, which is the, the death of this person in, in, in police custody, the death of this woman in police custody, but it's speaking to much, much larger and broader um, discontent. Could you, could you talk about that, please? As uh, Eskandar was uh, saying, it's a system of humiliation. Since 1979 revolution, the policing and control of women's bodies have begun. And since then, the Iranian government has been um, exerting control over what women have to wear, uh, how they have to behave, what their role in the society is. This goes from school to university and is deeply engraved in how the state uh, is actually operating. This mandatory Islamization of all spheres of uh, social life reducing the role of women uh, into motherhood, discrimination against LGBTQ people, the legal system that uh, deprives women of their basic rights and mandating legal code adhering to Sharia law are all examples of uh, discrimination against women in Iran. According 
to global gender gap reports uh, 2017, Iran ranks 140 of 144 countries of, for gender parity. Um, compared to other South A- Asian regions, women in Iran have better access to education. But when you look at the um, female labor force participation rate, the average value is 14 percent, while the world's average is 50 percent. I would like to emphasize that um, all these discriminations and lack of self-determination reflect the position of women in a hierarchy of a system that is based on clientelism, corruption, and appropriation of the total surplus value. And uh, Iskandar, I wanted to bring you in on, on, on this question. I suppose the source of these patriarchal laws. Is there a popular element to this? Is this the case that there are loads of Iranian men who think, oh, we love having power over women, let's keep these patriarchal laws, and so there's support for them? Or is this a, a top-down thing? Is this because Iran is you know, is not a democracy, and so thereby there are elites who can impose this kind of things on the population? Um, yeah, that's a really important point. I think definitely the ruling Islamist um, system certainly did... Um, Manipulate and sort of draw on deeper kind of patriarchal currents and traditions within Iranian society, and definitely in order to basically consolidating itself and consolidating this really kind of deeply ingrained, as, as Mitra was saying, institutionalized form of gendered social control certainly did play into that. But I think it is important, as uh, Mitra was saying, there was always resistance to this. I mean, I think just saying this, this didn't just come out of nowhere. Obviously, maybe the quality, quali- there's a slightly qualitative difference in the form of resistance today, but it, it, it certainly has always existed. When we go back to March 1979, the revolution happened in February 1979, women very quickly mobilized against mandatory hijab. And it's also just important. I mean, my main focus is really uh, as a historian. So um, one thing that we do really see, even in 79, very few people who participated in the revolution, who witnessed what was called the, the spring of freedom, thought that mandatory hijab was really ever on the cards. And what we actually see that it was very much led from the top. Ayatollah Khomeini famously, quite early in the revolution, did say that, you know, women who work in government ministries will have to wear the hijab. And women rapidly uh, mobilized on International Women's Day of 1979 to reject that um, and really um, forcefully. And, and, you know, when we look back to their struggle, it is actually, you know, they were very much like a a bellwether, uh, a barometer of what was to come. And unfortunately, they were they were they were shut down and repressed. And then there was obviously a counter-revolution kind of backlash, mobilization, in order to ensure that no no such initiative would ever be launched again. But I would just like to just read two of the slogans of that period, which I think are very, very indicative of how uh, many women sort of both viewed the revolution and, and participated in the revolution and saw their struggle for women's rights as part and parcel of that struggle against the Shah's dictatorship. So one of them is, we did not make a, a revolution to go backwards. And that was said, you know, by masses of women, thousands and thousands of women protesting mandatory hijab. Another one was, freedom is not Eastern, not Western, it is universal. So this goes to say, I mean, one of the things that one might hear is that this is sort of an indigenous tradition. This is what most people want and so on. This is the, their way of doing things. Many, many, you know, huge swaths of women absolutely rejected that. And I would say that many religious women also reject mandatory state-enforced hijab, which necessarily requires state violence to be enforced. And this is exactly what happened to Masa Amini, that she really bared the brunt of state violence. And this led to her, you know, as far as we understand, led to her death. You know, but like I said, women have been resisting ever since. 
And even in the dark day of the in the 1980s through the 1990s, there was a one million women's signature campaign and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I think that is a very, very important history. This is sort of the latest chapter in it. And it is a really ferocious one. And it's quite incredible to see. Mitra, I want your your take, your assessment of how people in the West, and I suppose especially I'm talking about left-wingers, leftists in the West, respond to protests like this. Because there is you know, an understandable suspicion, basically dating back especially to the Iraq war, where people see neoconservatives and right-wingers saying, we need to have some quite aggressive foreign policy towards a country like Iran to save women there. I think that makes left-wingers suspicious of protests like this, potentially reluctant to to engage, to even, you know, I suppose, bother to have an opinion on it because it's a bit too complicated. What do you make of that question? How should people look to protests for, e.g., in this case, women's rights in countries like Iran, which we know are subject to imperial ambitions of Western powers? That's a very good question. It's true that uh, Western countries um, cynically talk about uh, women's rights, fund and pursue enjoyization um, of social movements and thus corporatize uh, the protests, etc. Yet at the same time, they, that the right is on the right, they are trying to channel the protest and impose their discourse, slogans, etc. Um, there we see a growing sensitivity towards um, such attempts. Just look at the slogans uh, that we hear on the streets um, against monarchy. Just look at the slogans that highlights the justice freedom alongside uh, opposing mandatory hijab. Just look at the, the slogan of Jinjian uh, Azadi or Woman Life Freedom, which um, originated in the Kurdish movement in Rojava, which finds its way into streets of Tehran. These are the signs of hope that people in the streets are demanding uh, equality and freedom, uh, which could promise an alternative future beyond the plots of humanitarian interventions and so on that you mentioned and beyond the imperialist plots of bringing a monarchy back to Iran. The legacy of uh, Iraq war, as you said, teaches us that we leftists across the board have to show solidarity and inform ourselves about the ongoing struggles on the streets and not let the vacuum to be filled by the reactionary forces that have ruined this region in the first place. That's um, my take on this issue. Askana Sadegi, Mitra Yousefi, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Super insightful. We really appreciate it. We are going to go straight on to our final story of the evening. The period of state-mandated national grieving may have come to a close, but apparently Republicans still have to keep their obscure and dangerous beliefs a secret. Take a look at Sky's Kay Burley grilling Labour's James Murray. Were you aware? I've got my pamphlet um, that's um, the Labour Party pamphlet that's sent out with our accreditation. And I noticed that there was a, a fringe event at the conference organised by a group called Labour for a Republic, talking about whether um, we should abolish the monarchy. Seems terribly inappropriate at the moment. Well, the fringe events are not organised by the Labour Party or endorsed by the Labour Party. Um, you know, that's not the view of, of the Labour Party front bench. That's not Will the view of myself or Keir Starmer. Present circumstances. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not in charge of, of conference um, arrangements. Uh, but what that I would say, well, what I would say is that what, I, what I've been doing as an MP uh, over the last week and a half, what Keir Starmer has been doing, and what you know, the whole party has come together around, is showing our thanks uh, for 70 years of service and devotion to duty oh, from Queen Elizabeth II. I get that, and you want to distance yourself from it, but nonetheless, you know, you don't really want these sort of events uh, taking place anywhere near a Labour Party conference, surely? 
Well, as I said, fringe events are not organised or endorsed by the party. Uh, what's important is that we're going to uh, sing the national anthem at conference. We're going to make clear uh, that we were part of that unity uh, coming together across the country and giving thanks for the life of Queen Elizabeth II. What's important is that we're going to sing the national anthem at Labour Party conference. Clearly, that is what's important right now. But I mean, how ridiculous was that, that line of questioning, right? We have a new king. Someone has just become the new king. We now have a King Charles instead of a Queen Elizabeth. If there was ever an appropriate time to talk about whether it's appropriate to be a monarchy or whether or not we should become a republic, it's now. It's the, the transition between one monarch and the other is the obvious time where we might have this discussion. Oh, do we really want a monarchy? Are we really into this whole hereditary succession thing, right? But apparently, no, we're not in the period of national mourning anymore. Apparently, we are still not allowed to discuss republicanism. And obviously, you know, Labour are jumping through hoop after hoop after hoop to say, no, we love the Queen just as much as the Tories, even more than the Tories. We made our Twitter avatars just complete black screens, whereas the Tories, those treasonous bastards, um, kept their faces on their Twitter profiles. We're the true moralists. So even, even though the leadership are doing that, journalists are still trying to catch the Labour Party out because there are some people, a group of people who would dare to be members of the Labour Party and not only believe in republicanism, but feel brave enough to discuss it. These aren't just, you know, you can be a Republican, but keep it to yourself. Keep it. I don't mind people being Republicans in the privacy of their own homes, but don't rub it in our faces. That seems to be what Kay Burley is saying, which is pretty strange considering what we're discussing here is a very key constitutional question for the country that we all live in. Dahlia, what did you make of, of that line of questioning and also that, that answer from James Murray? Now that things have somewhat uh, settled down, I think we really need to get real about what the hell has just gone on in this country. First of all, uh, to just get it out of the way, because it's like barely relevant, James Murray's answer, cowardly, boring, meaningless. So quite a good avatar um, for the Labour Party itself right now. There should be absolutely nothing controversial about a Labour movement and therefore a Labour Party having a problem with the notion of one family owning almost all of the land in this country. Like land ownership is pretty much one of the most classic kind of indefatigable forms of class power, right? Um, so that should be like pretty standard Labour politics, small L Labour politics. But even if today's Labour Party, you know, wants to kind of abandon those those roots and wants to act like this is controversial, um, which it isn't, then there would still be a really easy way to answer this question without looking evasive and clownish and weak. You could just, it's just two words, free speech. Like, despite the past few weeks, we actually aren't supposed to be living like feudal peasants who can expect to be hung, drawn and quartered in the town square for questioning the divine right of monarchs to rule. And just because a, yes, I understand, pub, like popular monarch has died does not mean that our standard for protected speech and freedom to organize should should be questioned. Like if people want to express and campaign for a change in any governing body in this country, whether it's a ruling monarch or a ruling government, then they have the right to do that. And for me, you know, 
many, and this is, you know, a republicanism question, but it's also more than a republicanism question because for many people, republicanism is not just about, or the critique of the, the concept of a royal family is not just about a theoretical understanding of how, you know, the constitution should be governed in this country. It's also rooted in a very uh, deep and painful history. And, and many of those uh, whose ancestors were colonized and displaced by institutions that are represented by monarchism have been asked to show a huge amount of grace to the feelings of those to whom the monarchy represents stability and safety. Obviously, that is not what the monarchy represents for a lot of the world. But, we, you know, there's there has been demands to show grace for those feelings. And yet, very little grace has been shown for the feelings of people who have legitimate critiques and legitimate complex feelings about the monarchy. Very little grace has been shown to that. And I think that we should always remember this moment um, for that reason when we talk about things like culture wars and freedom of speech and identity politics and who actually holds real power, not imagined or, or caricatured power, but real power when it comes to those debates. But secondly, what really worries me about, you know, the tenor of that line of questioning is that, yes, there's been a sense of destabilization and a sense of grief that, that some people have experienced, that many people have experienced with the death of Queen Elizabeth. But I worry that this is now becoming a moment where the ability to to dissent and the ability to be disgruntled with those who hold power in this country and the way that that power is being wielded and to question how power is distributed in this country, that that right is being strangled, you know, at a time when there is real and legitimate grief to be had with the political and economic order that we are living under. That moment is, this moment is kind of being used to, to paper over the cracks and the dissent that is bubbling under that surface. You know, the, the, I've forgotten his name already, but he used a term unity. You know, he said, like, we've all joined in this moment of unity. And yes, I, I'm sure many have felt that, but this isn't actually, that unity is not real. Like the unity is not real in the sense that we aren't having a unified experience of those material questions around how our, how the next few months, few years are going to look like. We aren't united in our experience of the cost of living crisis. We aren't united in our experience of, of economic crisis and the contraction of the job market. We aren't united in our experience of the mounting attack on our human rights. And so it's really important that we don't confuse the kind of symbolic and emotional unity that many have felt in this moment with the very with the very real fact that the country on a material level is more divided and more separate than ever. So it was James Murray who was giving that answer, Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. I think our audience will probably be very understanding of you um, forgetting his name. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's been great to be back. Some housekeeping before we go. This weekend, we'll be broadcasting from the World Transformed in Liverpool. We'll have two shows, Saturday and Sunday evening. So make sure to come back to this channel for those or come view live if you are in Liverpool. For now, we've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.